My name is Brian Fatasek, and this class is on discovering the heart of God. So hopefully this is uh, the place that you intended to be. And if it's not, then it's apparently the place God wants you to be. So that, that works too. I was talking with uh, one of my coworkers earlier this week, and he was hoping to be here for Harbor, but uh, couldn't do it. And, and he was saying that, you know, he hopes, you know, this class goes well and everything. And he said he hopes it's well attended. And I told him, look, I just want the right people to show up, the people who need to hear whatever it is that God's word is going to speak to us this morning. So I told them whether it's one or two or just me and my wife hanging out together for 45 minutes, like I know that God would send the right people. So uh, I feel humbled and grateful to be able to, to teach a little bit, share a little bit today. Thank you all for being here. Um, I just would like to maybe get to know in general terms who I'm speaking to a little bit uh, in lieu of going around and sharing, you know, three interesting facts about us. Um, Maybe, can I just get a show of hands if, if you are working for a, a church part-time or full-time and that's like you're, you're, you're employed in that capacity, and then if you're maybe like a, a volunteer, uh, an elder, maybe you really love your church and you serve there, and then you work for maybe like a parachurch organization, maybe like a, a college or something. I was trying to figure out how I could say for you guys right there, because you're kind of right in the in-between of... of uh, well, I love your ministry and what you guys do. So, and then, any, any, did I kind of leave anyone out? How, how else would you maybe describe yourself? Yes. A retired servant of the Lord. Sweet. Yeah. I'm not sure if we ever fully retire from that. But. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Spent 14 years in Italy doing mission work. That's incredible. And now I'm retired and asking God where to lead me, and He led me here today, like. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're here. That's that's really cool. So uh, just a little bit about me. My name is Brian. I'm the lead minister at uh, Westside Church of Christ in Bakersfield. And here's some pictures of my family. You can see my wife, Tracy, in the back. And baby Avery is under there getting a little snack right now. We've got a seven-year-old Logan who's in first grade and a five-year-old Dylan with bright red hair. And he's going to start kindergarten in the fall. And I, just with how conspicuous my, fam my family is a little bit right now, and th there's a chance you've seen us or our kids running around in the cafeteria, almost tripping you and knocking over your plate of food. So I apologize in advance for that. I'm grateful to be here. And um, what I want to do is start with a little activity just uh, that's going to be tied to our, our main talk for today. So this is where we're going to use that blank piece of paper that I handed out. Um, there is one chair up here and someone can come sit up here if they'd like to however uh, you'd like to do that so what i'd like you to do is with that blank piece of paper we're just gonna we're gonna think for a second about uh how you would maybe describe yourself and maybe how you would describe yourself your character your personality in like five words or less so this isn't like oh i'm a student or i'm a father those are about your maybe identity of, who, of, of kind of you know what you do uh, maybe like personality. So how would you describe your inner character, your personality in about five words or less? So just go ahead and write that down. Write your name on it. I'm not going to call on everyone. I'm not going to call on anyone who doesn't want to be called on, but I am going to have maybe a couple people turn in their card and we're going to share uh, a little bit about what you wrote down. Uh, this class is about discovering the heart of God and it's going to cover the five essential character traits that God revealed about himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, at a really crucial time in Israel's history. I'm hopefully going to be able to, to talk a little bit about 
why we need to know that, like, like why that is worth our time and our, our focus and our study. And uh, I'm hoping by the end of it, you'll start thinking about how this passage about God's character can inform your ministry, your church leadership, your relationship with your spouse or kids or people you're ministering to. Basically, how does who God is impact the way that we serve and interact with one another? We have one chair. Here, let's roll this somewhere, or it's, it's not going to be maybe quite so obvious. You can roll that wherever you like. Okay, so again, on that blank piece of paper, five words or less that describe uh, maybe who you are. And I'll just give you another second or two to do that. All right, so uh, what I'd like to do is, like I said, no, one, no one's going to be forced to share yours, but are there maybe a couple volunteers that wanted to, you, you would be willing to turn yours in, so did, did you write it down? No. Oh, okay. Uh, I'd like ones, maybe if you wrote yours down, and we can, I'll have you share too, but if you wrote your name on it and you don't mind me sharing a little bit about what you wrote down, okay, Bree, thank you. Devin, thank you very much for volunteering, I appreciate that. <laughs> and then maybe one more. Here. Here. Great Okay, so, um, Devin, yours is probably the one without a name on it because you just kind of got volunteered into that, right? Okay, sounds good. All right, so, um, so Bree from uh, La Mesa said that she is a paintbrush. She is a paintbrush. I like that. Would you be willing to share maybe a short word or phrase about maybe what that means? Sure. I can see that. Yeah. So Sweet. All right. Kind of... A paintbrush. I love that. Very good. Uh, Graham wrote down hardworking and a loyal friend. Now, we have some people in the room that know Graham really well. Do you think that's true about him? Yes. I would say that's true about you too, Graham. Uh, Devin wrote down that he's narcissistic, prideful, <laughs> extremely arrogant, and never takes his shopping cart back to the caddy after he goes grocery shopping. Devin, any problems with, uh, with uh, what I just said? <laughs> Lauren, uh, any problems with the way I described your wonderful husband just now? No problems at all? Okay. So you guys need to look up like the marriage counseling class or something after this. Because what Devin actually wrote down was relaxed and happy to be here. But I have a feeling that just for a split second when I started to say all these terrible things about Devin that were absolutely untrue of his character, for a split second, I'm sure he got really defensive and caught off guard and probably really angry and probably just in, in a moment was like, what is he talking about? He's slandering me in front of all these people and he's saying things that are completely untrue of who I am on a deep level. And I think sometimes we can be somewhat guilty of doing that with God. God has chosen to reveal himself his inner character, his essential traits, in a very particular way in Scripture. And sometimes the way that we talk about God or portray him, or sometimes the way that we uh, try and imitate him is uh, in a way that is completely inconsistent with the way that God has described himself. Imagine if I somehow was invited up in front of the entire Harbor audience and started talking to you about how arrogant and prideful and terrible of a person Devin is. 
At that point, now I'm slandering him in front of hundreds of people instead of a, a few dozen here. What if I went out and started these clubs that talked about how, how terrible Devin is and we all need to be like arrogant Devin? And if I went around and, and really just slandered him in front of everyone, I mean, Devin would get more and more upset that he is developing this reputation that is entirely untrue. So what this class is about is studying the way that God has chosen to reveal his inner character, why we need to know that, and how we can kind of incorporate those character traits into our lives, our ministry, and our relationships. So uh, the theme passage, the main passage that we're going to be in today is from Exodus 34.6. It's up here on the screen. Uh, feel free to, you know, follow along in the Bible app or something like that if you want to read this too. But here's our passage. Uh, and he passed in front of Moses, the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And the, the colors on here are a little bit muted, a little bit hard to see, but hopefully you can see that we've got five words or phrases that are in bold up here. And God, when given the chance to share who he is, his inner character, his key, you can maybe call them personality traits, essential qualities. He's given the chance to say exactly who he is, an exercise somewhat like what we just did with our little uh, blank pieces of paper. When given that opportunity, God says that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, which is perhaps another way of saying patient, and abounding in love and faithfulness. And some translations of your Bibles might say uh, love and truth. In fact, these, these concepts are not uh, extremely specific to one particular word in English. They are a little bit broad in the original Hebrew. So in your Bibles, you might actually see slight variations on the way that some of these are translated. But compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So I want to I just start, and, and really, if there's one thing that I can accomplish today, my, I would say my number one goal is to persuade you that this passage deserves a lot of thoughtful reflection. That this is something we need to be thinking deeply about and studying. That this is worthy of our time and our meditation. It's not a passage that I have heard a ton of sermons about before, but I think it is crucial to understanding the heart of God, the character of God, and I think it has a lot to say about our family life, our relationships, our ministry. So to me, this is one of those spots where there is a big difference between how important I think it is versus how much we tend to talk about it. And so that's why I think this one is probably worth giving a little extra attention to. One of the reasons why I think we need to know about God's heart or his character goes back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible reveals that all of us, all of humankind, male or female, have been created in God's image. And there's a lot of different things that that could mean. Like, What does it mean that we are made in God's image? But I think one of the things is that there is something innate or inherent in us that is supposed to reflect who God is. If we are made in his image, something about us is, is deeply connected to the heart or the nature of God. As we study more about who God is, we're learning about who God created us to be at our very core. So that goes back to Genesis chapter 1, and that's true of, of, all of all of humanity. Christian or not, we are all made in God's image. I think he is inviting us to exhibit some of these same kind of character traits. 
When it comes to Christians specifically, believers, people who have made the decision to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is a spiritual transformation that takes place. There is a death to the old way of living and a new life in Christ. So in passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, it talks about how we are made new in Christ and the new self is created to be like God. Uh, let me kind of catch up on my slides here. I've kind of been forgetting to, to tap ahead on some of these. Uh, but yeah, Ephesians 4, 24 says that if, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation and the new self is created to be like God. So again, if, if we are created to be like God, to imitate him, that it makes sense that we would want to know who he is and know his character traits. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 Paul has a lot of things to say about what's going wrong with that church and how they're very quick to uh, believe a different kind of gospel, a different kind of message. And in Galatians 4.19, Paul reveals that one of his strongest desires for that particular church, and I really think for, for all churches, for all Christians, is that Christ would be formed in the hearts of every believer, in the heart of every believer. So many, so many things that we could do that we could focus on, but Paul says, I'm going to keep working and keep striving and keep preaching until Christ is formed in you. And so these passages about being made in the image of God, being created to be like God, working until Christ is formed in us, I'm hearing that there's something about us that's supposed to really imitate or emulate the, the key characteristics of God. So, in my mind, that's why it's definitely worth knowing who God has revealed himself to be. It's sort of the roadmap that we're trying to follow, the destination that we're trying to arrive at. And there's this little phrase that I want to I teach you that helps you understand the connection between uh, maybe God's character and the way that we serve in ministry or, or the way that we live. And the little phrase is, no, show, go. No, show, go. And here's how this plays out in Scripture. Uh, in Exodus 34, which we just read, we kind of hear God saying, I want all of you to know who I am and what I'm like. So God tells us with these five words and phrases. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's something he wants us to know, so he tells us exactly who he is. Um, when Jesus comes into the world, God wants to show us what those qualities look like in a real person in a real-life example. Jesus is a tangible example of all five of God's invisible qualities that he reveals in Exodus 34. So in Exodus 34, he wants us to know who he is, so he tells us. In the life of Jesus, God wants to show us who he is, so he sends Jesus into our world to be that tangible example. And then, for us, the way that God's character is connected to our lives and the way that we live, it's go. Jesus says, go into all the world. I want you to do a little show and tell about who God is. I want you to tell them about the gospel story, tell them who God is, tell them the good news of the gospel, but I also want you to show them who I am by the way you live your lives. So no show, go. God wants us to know who he is. God shows us who he is, and then he says, go into the world and make sure that everyone else knows about uh, uh, God's character and, and who he is. So uh, that's sort of like what I'm hoping to, to talk about today, what, what uh, I'm hoping that we can accomplish in the short time that we have. Uh, to prepare for this class, 
Uh, we, about a year ago, me and our youth minister, our incredible youth minister, Adam England, uh, at Westside, preached through this sermon series. And, and we did one sermon uh, a week on, on each one of those character traits. So five, five character traits of God, and we preached about it over five weeks. And we just talked in depth about what it means that God is compassionate, or what it means that he's gracious, or slow to anger, or abounding in love, or abounding in faithfulness. And then to follow that up, that, this was the artwork that we used for that sermon series. To follow that up, I did, uh, since we were in pandemic, we were doing an online church at that time, online Wednesday class. So I did a class that looked at how does Jesus demonstrate all five of those character traits in his life, in his ministry. So five sermons, five Wednesday night classes, 10, you know, classes or sermons total. I kind of went through all of that and just tried to say, what's the 40 minute version of this? The most important points that we could convey. If you do suffer from insomnia and wanna go listen to those sermons or classes again, they're on our church website. You can definitely feel free to do that, uh, but I'm gonna try and give you like the condensed version of all that today. Uh, but the fact that we would spend five Sunday sermons and five Wednesday classes on really just this one verse, Exodus 34, six, shows you from, from our perspective how important we think knowing the character of God is. It's a testament to, to, to my conviction that this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. And in fact, I recently learned from the Bible Project, which I don't know if you've heard of them or have listened to their material. They have a great series on this passage, and they made the point that Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals his character, is the passage in the Old Testament that other Old Testament writers quote more than any other passage in the Bible. So the Old Testament writers keep going back to this particular passage, and they'll either quote it word for word, the entire thing, or sometimes they'll choose two or three or four of those different passages. Uh, so uh, again, forgetting about the slides here, um, um, here's, here's some of the ways that we see this in Scripture. This, this phrase, this uh, description of God, is repeated in Israel's history in their Scriptures over and over and over again. It's first revealed in Exodus 34, which we just read. And for the next thousand years, God's people keep coming back to this particular description of God. For the next thousand years, they keep reminding one another that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And sometimes it is word for word, like Psalm 8615 in around 1000 BC. So the, the first time it was mentioned that God reveals this is roughly like the 1400s BC. Um, Psalm 86.15 quotes it word for word. There's a lot of other places where it's almost word for word. They would maybe leave out one of the descriptions or something like that. It's in Numbers, which is right after God revealed it to Moses. It's in Psalm 103 and Psalm 145, again, close to 1000 BC. It's in Joel a couple hundred years after that. It's in Jonah, you know, almost 100 years after that. And Nehemiah, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, which is about 1,000 years after it was first revealed to Moses, Nehemiah is, they're still talking about it when they come back home to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. So for 1,000 years, they, they, they keep coming back to this description of God. And in some instances, they don't do the all five, but they'll mention specifically that God is compassionate and gracious. And you see that again in Psalms and 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, uh, once again. So this is uh, such an important part of Israel's understanding of God. They keep coming back to this, quoted more than any other passage in the Old Testament. And it makes me kind of wonder, why do you think Israel kept coming back to this description of God over and over? Why was it so important for them to keep reminding themselves or one another 
that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So that's a discussion question. Does anyone have any thoughts on why you think Israel would keep coming back to this description of God for a thousand years in their history? Because they didn't deserve it. They knew this is who God was. They knew the kind of treatment they deserve from God based off of their idolatry, sin, rebellion, hard hearts. And they maybe were floored that God would continue to be so compassionate and gracious. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts? It's not a description of God. It's, a, it's God's own description of himself. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The exercise would be a little different if we were trying to describe, you know, our friend or our, or our kids or someone we know. Like we, we could probably describe them pretty well, but when they put it in their own words, when they, when they choose those words to describe themselves, uh, there's something pretty significant to that. So this is where God has the opportunity to say, I know what all of you are saying or thinking about me, but here's the truth about who I am. You're going right to the source. Yeah, so that's a good point. They knew they didn't deserve it. This was God's own words himself. It came from him. So you're just going straight to the source. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts? Maybe we as parents have to repeat ourselves before something finally makes its way through. So maybe we need a little repetition there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. A lot of these, uh, oh, before I rush ahead, any other, any other thoughts? Miss um, Ellen. Comfort. 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 We're going through difficult times in Israel's history, either our own sin or national disasters or things out of our control, and we need to reaffirm that it's okay. God is with us. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yeah, good, good. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, that came to my mind, I think maybe one of the best explanations, is really just sort of a synthesis of everything that we've been saying so far. Uh, is it really, Israel was a, a nation of prodigals. And they were deeply in love with the Lord, but at the same time, they were very prone to wander away from the God that they loved so much. There's, in other words, just like us, right? Like we, we love the Lord, and yet we are so prone to get distracted, to choose us over God. Sometimes it, we're living like, not God's will, but mine be done, right? Sometimes we live that way, and and they were rather prone to sort of drift away from God and ignore his commands. And, and they understood what they deserved as a response to their sin or rebellion was the anger, the punishment, the discipline, the wrath. And yet they constantly reminded themselves, each other, that God was going to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love instead. And in fact, um, on your handout, I've, I've basically listed every, everything you see on the screen is probably going to be on your handout somewhere too. So all the passages where they quote that either word for word or, or parts of it, a lot of them come in the immediate context of Israel or an individual has just sinned in, in, in a terrible way. Like they, they, they talk about this in the context of their spiritual rebellion. They have sinned against the Lord. They are confessing their sin. They are working through their repentance. And they invoke God's description of himself as they repent, as they confess their sins. So in Psalm 51, this is the psalm that David wrote after his affair with Bathsheba. He quotes it there. In the aftermath of that uh, affair with Bathsheba, he invokes God's grace 
It's translated mercy in the NIV, but it's the same Hebrew word that God uses in Exodus 34. He also invokes God's compassion and his unfailing love. So he talks about three of those five character traits that God reveals about himself in Exodus 34. When Jonah goes to preach to the evil, rotten, terrible people of Nineveh, and they respond to, like, his sermon was, I forget if it's like seven words or 12 words, it's like one of the shortest sermons, and they completely turn their lives around, Jonah is actually upset that God is a little too compassionate or a little too patient with him, a little too gracious, a little too slow to anger. And he talks about, I knew this was going to happen because I knew you were a compassionate and gracious God. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love. And frankly, I'm a little ticked off about it because I think they should have been punished. But he invokes that and he kind of has that as part of his pity party at the end of Jonah. In Joel chapter 2, God um, calls upon the people of Israel to return to him with all their hearts, despite the sin that's going on in their lives, because he's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And because of that, because that's his nature, he's telling Israel, that if, if, if you turn to me, I'm not going to treat you as you really deserve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out my grace and my blessings on you, and I'm going to honor your, your repentance. And then in Nehemiah 9, the entire chapter is the Levites are leading the people of Israel in this public time of worship, public confession, public repentance, and in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 17 and 31, both of those contain references to God's description of himself from Exodus 34. They're talking about how God was patient, slow to anger with Israel's ancestors when they were wandering around in the desert. He did discipline them, but he didn't fully treat them the way they they really deserved. And when they talk about it in Nehemiah 9, they're saying, look, we know how God has treated our ancestors in the past. And that gives us all the confidence in the world to know that when we return to him now and when we repent, we can be confident that he will continue to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in love and faithfulness with us because we see the way that he uh, has acted in the past. And so because they were this nation of wanderers prone to wander away from the God they love, I think that in an alternate timeline where come thou fount of every blessing was already written in Israel's history, perhaps that would have been their national anthem. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That could be the the, the song of Israel. They were so prone to wander, and they kept needing that reminder that, that even though they walked away from God, even though they sinned, even though they rebelled, God was ready, like the father in the prodigal son's story, to welcome them back with open arms. God does discipline Israel, He does discipline his children. He does hold people accountable for their sins. And in fact, maybe you know this because you're great Bible scholars and you know the book of Exodus forwards and backwards, but God reveals this in the immediate aftermath of the golden calf idol. And there was so much tension in the story because God was really, you know, ready to kind of move on and just start over with Moses. And Moses intercedes for these people who were ready to kill him and go back to Egypt, and they're complaining about him, but he still went to to God and interceded on their behalf. So there's a great leadership lesson there about going to bat for the people, even if you're not real excited about them in that moment. You still go to bat for them. You still pray for them. You still you know, fight for them. Um, But there's a lot of tension on on what is God going to do in response to this really egregious sin. There is discipline in the story. And we're not saying God is, is, is totally fine with anything that we do, no consequences whatsoever. There's discipline, but 
discipline doesn't define God's character. Like the, the anger, the wrath, the judgment, the accountability doesn't define his character. God has the opportunity to say who he is, and he focuses on the grace and compassion. So there's discipline, and it's situational, and it's short-term, and God's discipline is designed to bring his people back into the right kind of relationship with him, but his inner character, his essential traits, are what we've talked about in Exodus 34. So uh, what I wanted to do was really just try and convince you, more or less, that this passage is really worth our time and our effort and our focus. That as we understand who God is, it's a roadmap of who we have been created to be. And I want you to maybe start thinking about how we can incorporate these kind of principles into our, our families, into our ministry. How can we be compassionate and gracious, patient, abounding in love and, and truth or faithfulness, in whatever area God has called us to serve. Uh, I, I know and I, I have full confidence in your ability to maybe do like a word study on each one of these. That's essentially what we did, is we took a deep dive into each one of these character traits of God uh, over those sermons. And I know that you can do that, but, but I knew that if I could convince you that it was worthwhile, that, would, that, that has to be the first step. That has to be the first step. So I hope that you walk away thinking, I want to spend a little bit more time in this passage, and I want to look into it. Uh, but since we have maybe a few more minutes, uh, I'll just share some of the highlights of, of what we talked about when uh, we studied this passage together at Westside. And the first thing that, that I noticed was that no one can totally agree on really the, the best translation of those first two words, compassionate and gracious. Uh, that's uh, pretty common in, in several translations of the Bible. Uh, you'll also maybe see compassion and mercy. So, so mercy or merciful, merciful and gracious, compassionate and merciful. The common English version, I think that's what that one stands for, just said, forget that, we're just gonna combine it into one, merciful, and that kind of covers both of it, uh, compassion and pity. And again, that's because Hebrew is a little bit uh, less specific than English, in my humble opinion. Sometimes they'll describe more of the concept uh, rather than the particular English word, you know, it's, it's maybe not that specific. But you kind of, you know, when you read it in all these translations, it rounds out our understanding of the way that God is revealing himself. But the original concept behind compassion in the Hebrew language has to do with, like, tender, motherly love, uh, being moved by a deep feeling of affection in response to someone's pain. And that's an attempt to define the, the concept in the original Hebrew language. Uh, in English, it has to do with, with sharing the, the hurt or the suffering of another person. But one of my favorite things that I discovered about this word looking into is that in Hebrew, the word for compassion is directly related to the word for a mother's womb. And, and it, it makes me think of the absolute love and intimacy and compassion that a mother has for her little newborn baby. And our baby's one year old and she's sleeping back there right now. So I've got a very vivid uh, image of, of what that looks like, the love between a mother and, and her child. But there's also, uh, you know, if you're at all familiar with what childbirth is like, there's a sense of some shared suffering that goes along with that too. And that is not a, an easy process by any stretch of the imagination. So there is a sense of we are in this together, like we are fighting together and I understand you and, and I love you and I care for you. And for all the times that the Bible uses masculine fatherly language to describe God. It's important to note that many times it's the image of a tender mother caring for her children, nursing Israel. So uh, God wants us to understand him uh, in that way. Uh, there's a lot of spots in Jesus's life, and like I said, part of, part of our series was Sunday morning talking about Exodus 34, and then Wednesday nights talking about how Jesus demonstrates that there's so many passages you can turn to where Jesus shows compassion 
on the crowds, compassion for individuals, care and concern, really connecting with people. But maybe one of my favorites would be in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, this is the story where uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in Matthew, he points out that this took place right after Jesus found out that John the Baptist was executed. And leading up to this moment where this huge crowd comes, hungry, tired, probably angry crowd coming at him, Jesus was actually trying to go somewhere quiet and alone so that he could mourn the loss of his dear cousin, his partner in ministry, John. He just wanted to be somewhere quiet, somewhere alone to properly work through his grief. And while he's trying to be alone, this crowd comes up with all of their illnesses and all of their problems and all of their needs. And anyone, like we would all be totally understanding if Jesus said, hey, look, guys, as much as I love you, I just need an afternoon alone. I just need a night to myself. Can we reschedule this for tomorrow? All of your needs will be taken care of then. Just come back. But instead, I mean, Jesus understands their hurt and their pain. And even though he has his own stuff going on, he still chooses to take care of the crowd, heals their diseases, heals their injuries, and feeds them. And uh, you can see that here in verses 13 and 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. When I want to be alone because I'm having a rough day, which does tend to happen from time to time, uh, and I see a big crowd coming towards me, needy people, probably the last thing on my mind is, is just, just honestly is compassion. But that's Jesus' first instinct. He's living out these character traits that God uses to describe himself. Uh, the next one that we talked about is, is gracious. And this is cool. Is anyone in the room named Hannah, or you have a, a family member named Hannah, or you know someone named Hannah, or you've heard the name Hannah before in your life? Okay, good. I knew it. I knew there would be a great connection here. So the, the name Hannah comes from the Hebrew word for grace or, or, or graciousness. It means merciful, kind, and generous. And this is one of my favorite terms because there's a really vivid image that goes along with this word in the original Hebrew. So read through the Old Testament, and you're probably not going to find the word grace a lot. It's all over the pages of the New Testament, but the word grace itself really isn't in the Old Testament, but the concept is, and it, it is absolutely there. They just use different words to describe it. And the way they describe it is finding favor in the eyes of the king or the governor, or the person in charge. And uh, in Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, it talks about this idea of finding favor. And they say people in an inferior position with regard to power or resources would seek the favor of a person in a socially superior position. So here's what that would look like in practice. You are a poor peasant. You don't have a lot of money to your name. You barely have enough to get by day to day. And then some sort of disaster strikes. And now you are in crisis. You have absolutely no ability to fix the problem on your own, and you are entirely dependent on the generosity of someone with more resources. So because you are facing imminent disaster in your own life, you know I'm in a desperate spot. I need to go to someone who actually has the power to help me through this difficult situation. You would go and you would bow down before the king, the governor, the mayor, your rich Uncle Phil from Bel Air, someone who has all the resources in the world to help you through that. And if you found favor in their eyes, it meant that they received you with joy in their hearts and they were making the commitment to hear you out, 
find out the terrible things that are going on in your life. And if you found favor in their eyes, you have found grace in their eyes. And they would make a commitment to help you through whatever challenge that you're facing. They do have the resources to help you. They do have the love in their hearts and the willingness to help you. And so when you come before the king and present your case, they've got all the love in the world, all the resources in the world, and then they help you uh, with whatever crisis you're facing. And you see this in a lot of Old Testament stories. You see this concept. Queen Esther goes before the king, bows down, makes her request known. And we know from that story that can be pretty risky. The king is under no obligation to hear you out, and you could be putting yourself in significant danger just by going to talk to the king. Uh, the story of, of Ruth also. She goes and she wants to go find someone in whose eyes she would find favor, and she would glean in that person's field. She has nothing to her name, no ability to take care of herself, and so she basically puts herself at the mercy of someone who is wealthy and more prominent. And so that's the idea of grace in the Old Testament, that God is the king seated on the throne, and every time Israel or one of us has this dire need that we have no ability to handle on our own. We can't solve it on our own. We can go approach the king. And listen for the way that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, incorporates this idea of approaching the king. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's drawing on that Old Testament concept of coming into the presence of the king and trying to find favor there. And one of the, one of the things that we should think about with connecting who God is, that he's compassionate and gracious to how we're called to be, is the way that oftentimes God roots an expectation on how we live in his own character. And what I mean by that is in a passage like Exodus chapter 22, he talks about being generous he talks about not charging interest on your loans, which no matter how many times I tell that to the federal government who owns my student loans, it's not working. Uh, he's, he's talking about you know, being generous, and the, 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 the reason he roots his expectation that his people would be generous towards others in his own character. For I am compassionate. Be generous to others because I have been gracious towards you. I've been compassionate towards you. I have lavished my grace and blessings upon you, and I'm expecting you to go do the same by paying those blessings forward. So in a passage like that, we start to see that when God describes himself, it's not just, thanks, God, that's great information. Well, see you later. It's, here's who God is, and we are called upon to demonstrate those same kinds of characteristics in the way that we live as well. Slow to anger is, you know, kind of the flip side of that would just be God is very patient. He does get angry. We see that in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. But God doesn't rush towards anger. And he defers judgment, defers his discipline for a long time uh, before he finally executes it. And I just think about the, the Israelites, how often they bowed down to idols, how often they wandered. You know, one king after the next after the next did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And at any point, God could have very, uh, he would have been completely justified in disciplining Israel right then and right there and kicking them out. But for generation after generation after generation, hundreds of years, God kept withholding his discipline, holding out hope that maybe the next king or the next generation would repent and turn back to him, withholding his anger, withholding his righteous judgment, because he kept holding out hope that maybe the next group to come along would come back and turn to him. We look at the exile of 
Assyrian exile, Babylonian captivity, and say, wow, God let his own people get captured and enslaved. What kind of loving God would do that? But we skip over the fact that God gave them 400 years to, to finally get it right, showing way more patience than any of us would do. Uh, and so we see that he does get angry, but he is a slow to anger. And you can look at Jesus, and Paul talks about how the fact that he was given the chance to preach is just a demonstration of the immense patience that God showed with him. Uh, and you can look at the things that, that uh, Jesus, he shows a lot of patience what he does, but maybe a few things that he does get angry about too. And, and that's in your handout here, so uh, I'll kind of skip through that right now. Uh, I'm hoping that I can just talk a little bit about uh, love and, and truth and faithfulness. But when it comes to uh, the Bible saying that God, that God uh, abounds in love, it's the Hebrew word hesed, which is always fun to say. It starts in the back of your throat there. And you can hear all the different ways that modern English translations have tried to capture this idea. Again, in, in Hebrew, it's, if, if you're giving directions to someone who's coming over to your house, you give them the, the number, or you give them your street, maybe there's an apartment number, maybe it's ring this doorbell, maybe come through this gate. There's a lot of specificity there. In Hebrew, they would probably tell you what street it's on, and then you're kind of just in the right neighborhood, and that's the way that Hebrew words work sometimes. We're kind of in this neighborhood of ideas. So chesed is one of these words where it's, it's love, it's faithful love, loyalty, steadfast love, loving devotion, goodness, faithfulness, loving kindness. Um, if there's not one specific word, you at least get the concept here that's all good things. There's loyalties, devotion, it's love, it's, it's caring, uh, and, and that's the way that God uh, describes himself. It involves kindness, uh, it involves loyalty, God's ongoing actions towards us, and then in response, we can show the same kind of love to him too, like in response to all of the loving things God does for us. We're called upon to love God in that same way. And then finally, faithfulness. You'll, you'll probably either see faithfulness or truth in your Bible. And it's, it's kind of two sides of the same coin in Hebrew. It talks about, uh, or it kind of refers to God is reliable. He's consistent. He can be counted on. Uh, there's, there's, there's a stability there. You, you, you don't have to wonder who God is because he's always the same. And he has kept his promises over and over and over so much that we can, we can put our trust in him because he's trustworthy. He has earned our trust. And uh, the, the way that he does it is by consistently speaking the truth and following through on all the promises that, uh, that he makes. So the way that we can think about this is that God is faithful in the sense that he is trustworthy or dependable. He's like a faithful covenant partner. Uh, we can put our faith in him. We can trust him because he has demonstrated how trustworthy he is. We are called upon then to be faithfully loyal or consistent in our devotion to him. And we're supposed to reflect that same ethic of truth-telling and promise-keeping in our relationships. So again, you start to see how God's character eventually impacts the way that we're called upon to live. Um, and there's times in Israel's history where they specifically highlight that God has been faithful to every promise. Like in Joshua chapter 23, verse 14, you know that all of God's promises have come true. And because he's been so consistent and so reliable, he is worthy of our unending trust. You guys remember what Jesus said at the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. A wise person builds his foundation on the solid rock of God and his word. 
Jesus is our firm foundation, and we sing that song, at least we do sometimes uh, at Westside. Uh, we sing the song about Jesus is our firm foundation, the one uh, who is worthy of our trust. And so that's the way that God has chosen to uh, reveal himself. You see that in the life of Jesus, too. Truth-telling and promise-keeping. And again, you're invited to go ahead and read that on your handouts here. So that's the five essential character traits of God. And here's just the last thing that I'll say about this. It's important to know who God is, because eventually, God expects us to start exhibiting those same character traits and personality traits in the way that we live. But if you're anything like me, you start to wonder, okay, but how do I really change who I am on the inside? If I'm not feeling very compassionate and gracious right now, I can't just say, okay, Brian, it's time to be more compassionate and expect that to work in the next day or two or week or month. There is something that God needs to do in our hearts to change us from the inside out. Because it's incredibly difficult for us to change ourselves. But there's a truth in scripture that God is transforming us from the inside out. And so the next step to all of this is to start asking, what does spiritual formation or spiritual transformation look like? And how can God start to change me from the inside out through the power of his spirit? That's a class that we just started at Westside not that long ago, a class on spiritual formation. So if you're interested, I do have uh, some, some handouts available for you that covers kind of what we've talked about in our spiritual formation class. It just has to do with how God changes us, how God helps us start to develop these. I printed out 15, uh, and if you want one, I can email it to you. On the back of your handout, the very bottom, I have some resources for you. Uh, with respect to spiritual formation, how does God, how can we let God really uh, change us? Uh, some books to read, some podcasts, and then at the very bottom is my my contact info. If you have any compliments, I put my real email address there. If you have complaints, it's Brianspam at hotmail.com. Feel free to do that. I'll get that eventually. But yeah, uh, so I'll I'll stick around maybe in the hallway for a few minutes if anyone wants to chat. I'm pretty sure there's another class that's going to come come in here in just a second. But thank you so much for coming, and I hope that I was at least partially successful at convincing you maybe Exodus 34 is worth a little bit more time and attention.